My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, you may be a long-term listener of the podcast, and you might not know, we actually have a website, and it's just resource-insider.com. And beyond the podcast, we also have a lot of free articles and other content that we send out to our readers and our listeners. And we also have a members-only deal flow service where we look for the best opportunities in the sector and we invite our members who are all accredited investors to invest alongside us and we're constantly on the lookout for great deals great investment opportunities we're actually just wrapping up a great one now where we had the opportunity to invest alongside a multi-billionaire big hedge funds and corporates into a really really cool west african gold deal so if you want to learn more about what we're doing besides the podcast go check us out at resource-insider.com. Now, the reason I bring that up is because today's guest is one of the best, most energetic, and most engaging dealmakers, entrepreneurs, and young leaders in the mining sector today. It is none other than Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman, the co-founder of Orin Resources. Ivan is only 42 years old. He's already got a couple very, very successful deals under his belt. He is one of the most dynamic leaders I have ever met in this space. He's incredibly optimistic. He is clearly, clearly very driven, and he's out there doing some really cool stuff. And what I like is he's focused on making a discovery. You know, you meet a lot of people in the sector these days, especially in this bad market, that are focused on playing it safe and being conservative and getting by and holding on until there's a bull market. Ivan is not like that. Ivan is aggressive. Ivan is driven. Ivan is out there looking to make a massive discovery And it was really, really fun and really entertaining and really educational to talk to someone with that mindset who hasn't been slowed down by poor market conditions. Ivan didn't need to be slowed down because he's built a core group of supporters around him. He's made people money and he's consistently able to finance his deals. So I learned a lot talking to Ivan. I think everyone's going to get a lot out of this, and it's super entertaining, super enjoyable. So please, without further ado, the great and powerful Ivan Bebic. Ivan, how's it going today? Very well, thank you. So we are back with the Resource Insider podcast. We are sitting in your beautiful office looking out in the harbor here in Vancouver. Um, and it is the Sprott Show this week, and everyone's busy running around like crazy, including you, who was downtown just yesterday giving a presentation, and so I appreciate you taking a few minutes to fit us in now. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's, uh, it's an exciting time for us in, in many ways, and also for the market. So we're going to talk about that, the market, about Oren, your main focus these days, and your background. 
But for those of you who have never, for, rather, for those out there who have never heard of Ivan Bebek, can you give us sort of the 20,000 foot view of who you are and what you do day to day? Sure, uh, 20,000 foot view entrepreneur, started young in the business as a stockbroker, decided um, by accident to be a contrarian after reading one of Warren Buffett's books, found uh, a lot of other, or a few other contrarians, one that everyone knows really well in Rick Rule, and understood that buying mining stocks when nobody wanted them and everybody wanted dot-com stocks was a good way to invest into the mining market, because I didn't know much at the time. Uh, soon after, met Dr. Roman Shkalenka, took me under his wing, to teach me about finding mines. And uh, Roman found six major mines around the world in his career, one of the legendary mine finders, and learned a wealth of knowledge from him. Uh, met a gentleman by the name of Sean Wallace in 2005. He was working with the Hunter Dickinson Group, and you know we both looked at each other and said, we one day want to be bosses and run our own companies versus work for these great mentors that were around. And um, you know I developed a really strong ability to market and finance what we do. And uh, Sean, on the other hand, you know, also good at that, but was um, had an incredible experience of taking mines from exploration through production with Hunter Dickinson. So we took the best of those two both worlds, created a company called Keegan, where we found five million ounces of gold, which was our goal. And to do that on our first company, we we understood there was a large luck component to what we were doing, but we also learned you can learn your luck, earn your luck, sorry. And then now uh, we started Caden Resources to go do the same thing. And uh, this one we sold, as you know, to Agnico Eagle in 2014 after 100 drill holes, which people told us was not possible and it was crazy. It was the middle of the bear market and we needed a resource. We read the market more than we read or put out a resource and that's what kind of delivered that success. But today I sit here with you uh, running Orn Resources with Sean and um, we're looking at finding the world's biggest mine. I think size got into our heads and we built out an incredible technical team. Portfolio of seven projects. We've raised and spent a hundred million dollars in the last five years. You asked me what my day job is. Um, everything. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very much, uh, I don't want to say a control fanatic, you know, in the right sense, but for these things to work well, for me to be able to finance, raise money and have the confidence to sleep at night, I have to have my fingers in every part of the company. So I involve myself or insert myself and everything from negotiating with our communities to working with our technical team on a daily basis, strategizing through their programs, um, working with our CFO on a daily basis with budgets, um, negotiating acquisitions, dealing with corporate investors, potential or corporate shareholders, and managing our broader market share price as well as investors. So there's nothing I don't do, but being 100% informed makes me much more powerful as a, a leader in my group you know, with my partner to uh, to run the business. And so that's that's how involved I am on a daily basis. Okay. So that's a lot of stuff for us <laughs> to unpack and to get into over sure. the next few minutes uh, or the next hour. I think the best place to start is getting in a bit more detail about what actually brought you into this industry. So you, you said that you initially started as a stockbroker. Yes. Uh, when you were a stockbroker, were you focused on mining stocks at the time, or did you actually start looking at tech? And, and, and so, I great question. I entered in December '99. Yeah. As you're aware, that was right before the dot-com peak, which crashed, started to crash in March <laughs> 2000, and they were doing two, three hundred dollar IPOs. As a 22-year-old stockbroker trying to understand a $200 share price that's going to possibly double, it was really hard to uh, comprehend. Um, having a, a certain appeal for the mining side and reading that contrarian book called Buffettology by, about Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. 
you know, it drove me to look at what's the sector that's not being paid attention to. And I looked at Kinross was 80 cents a share, subsequently went to over $20 a share. Eldorado was 30 cents, subsequently went to $20 a share as well. And a bunch of other juniors. And I thought to myself, well, these are pretty great opportunities. Will they ever come back? And I started pitching mining stocks to my clients and a lot of brokers in Vancouver heard of me doing quite well, becoming a, a broker that had big ambitions and everyone likes to put down the new guy on the block because it's a competitive business. And they said to my clients that Ivan's crazy. Mining will never be what it used to be. And they were right. Three years later, it was way better than it had ever been before. So that's that's the, the foray into it. And, and you're I'm, like in your early 20s at this 22 point. 22 years old. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, I started financing a company called Kobex that was run by my dad and Roman Shklanka. My dad was a developer, but he dabbled in the markets. And my dad met Roman, and my dad's advice to me was integrity is everything. And if you can attach yourself to really brilliant people, then you can learn a lot. And just make sure you can hang your hat on whatever you're financing, marketing, doing at the end of the day. So integrity was my advice from my dad. That's how I met Roman. His track record was an easy sell for me and his quality as, as an integral as a person was, was really, really positive. It actually introduced me to, to Rob Sally, who was a cold call, I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, working with Roman, it opened a lot of doors. I recognized that his reputation would do so. Um, you know, eventually after being a broker, I, I decided to go work for Roman directly for n not enough money to pay the rent, but I didn't care. I got to work with a legendary mine finder and I remember vividly to this day the cold call I did to Rob Sally, who at the time was one of the mining brokers of Vancouver. Mm. I was given a short list of six brokers. He was one of the, the big guys on there. I called him up and I said, hi, my name is Ivan Bebek and I'm working in the exploration business. He goes, I'm working with Roman Shkalenka. Then he heard that name and he goes, you have 45 seconds, go. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I pitched him. And if you remember that movie from Wall Street, uh, with Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox. I felt like Bud Fox pitching Gordon Gecko in this call because I knew Rob's reach was massive market-wide and I knew Roman was the key in, but I had 45 seconds to sell this guy. And there was a stock called Baratex. The symbol was IBX at the time and it was trading around 20 cents a share. I pitched a block to Rob to buy it around 30 cents a share. So were you working for Baratex? I, I switched over after okay. two years as a broker and I decided that there was a lot more money in the running of the company side yeah. than there was in the brokerage. I also found myself as a broker being quite critical to a lot of junior management teams that were doing things wrong. And instead of telling people how to run their business, I figured let's go how to run my own business one day. That was my mind thinking at the time. But um, you know, I remember when I pitched Rob and I asked him and 45 seconds later, he said yes, bought a block above the market. And um, I remember lying on the floor in of my office, like I just bagged the elephant kind of thing. And if you followed my career since, it, it truly was the elephant. I mean, Rob's introduced me to so many people in the business and you know, helped me design a lot of really intelligent ways to market and finance our companies. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned at the start of that how mining was really in the dumps at that point. You sort of saw that as a, as a growth opportunity compared to these $200 tech stocks. Do you see any parallels in that moment to what we're seeing today in the mining industry? Or maybe not today, maybe a few months ago would have been a better time to ask that question. I think I saw it at Bitcoin's peak in 19... Yeah. I made a, a bet with a, another banker that gold would outperform Bitcoin when, when Bitcoin was at $19,000 a coin. 
And to me, it was exact frothiness that I didn't like about the dot-com market. And quickly after, it corrected and I won the bet. Um, the second part of that question is, what's different this time around? And we just saw the cannabis market as well, is there isn't the same ability to find mines that there was before. We're losing generations of people that find them, but the real estate that you go find these mines, it's not what it used to be. You know, all the easy mines have been found. I don't know how many billion off the top of my head has been raised since 2000, the last 20 years, but anything that was outcropping that was easy to find has been found already, and we're now looking for major deposits undercover. Unless you get lucky, you know, drilling wildcat holes, it's, it's, it's a tough go. So I think this time it's way different and I think the opportunity in the market is the same, but I think the opportunity for success is much harder, which means that the few discoveries we have that are of significance are gonna do much better. And I'd kind of go back to the 90s or the market where you saw Fairlawn going to $22 a share off of modest discoveries and stuff like that. Um, there's more people, there's more investors, there's the influence of accessibility to more investors through the internet, which never really existed before. And the mines being found, gold mines, the last mine in the world found of significance being Amaruk, six million ounces of six grams per ton is now being built. That was in 2013. I can't think of another gold mine, unless in a geopolitical place you wouldn't want to be, that has been found of north of five million ounces yeah. of that kind of grade. That's a huge statement. And then people always like to say, well, no one's looking. We spent 100 million in five years looking with Newmont's former global exploration team, Ross Beattie and company, a um, handful of entrepreneurs in our business are looking. Few guys are, are getting lucky, like uh, Dave Strang. Um, you know, there's some groups out there, but all the legendary mine finders that used to exist are no longer in the game. They're retiring on their last, you know, decade of participating. The energy is not there of what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point because how old are you now? 42. So you're 10 years older than me. Sure. Uh, there's not many people doing what you're doing in your generation, and there's even less in my generation that are, are doing that. So it's a big generation gap. Yeah. And the guys who did it all, where we've made all the money in the last 20 years, they're in their 60s and going into their 70s, right? And I can tell you as a 42-year-old who's done this for 19 years, almost 20 years, it's there's a certain shelf life of this drive and energy and passion that you have. And I, I don't see having it in my 60s anymore. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the legacy is big enough that it's a lot less lifting. But every this is our third company. Every company we do, I find it's even more work than the one before because you generally try to bite off a bigger piece of yeah. the pie, right? So this change in the Okay, so we have less people doing the work that needs to be done. We have... It's harder to find great assets now. Mm -hmm. The game of financing a company has changed drastically over the last 10 years. Sure. What does this mean? So for a company to be successful in this new reality that we're seeing, what do they need to be doing differently than they did when you started your career even? And the follow-up to that is, what... How does how has this changed the game for investors? What should they be looking at that you know they maybe previously didn't have to worry about? Oh, it's great, two great questions. It's a long um, question. <laughs> that's a good one. Well, the first part, if you look at, I don't envy people coming into this market to try and do what we're doing, because the market's been tough. We're at the end of a bear cycle, right? 
and that's usually when it's the hardest. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in the transition to turn up, and you can see it. You know, I've had some employees quit, important employees. Some guys have been with me for nine years, seven years. Like these are long-term guys who have left to go pursue other things, and these guys are going to get on the indicator T-shirt soon. That's when they end up because I wish them all well, but you know, you you're leaving because you've met the threshold of this business is getting too hard. So a new guy coming in, the one thing that I will say is that everyone's scared to raise money. Everyone's scared to be bold about their projects. Everyone's got a lot of fear because the market's been so bad. Everyone's dealing with a jaded sense of fear is what I find. If you can surpass that and look at the positive sides, because it's an optimistic business to go find gold or any kind of mining deposits, if you can remain to be optimistic and if you can persevere with a lot of tenacity and go out there and be bold, take that risk. You know, you're gonna go and win. You don't win if you don't take a big risk. You don't win big if you don't bet big, right? I find, and I'm not gonna take a shot here at millennials, but I'm sort of gonna address them a little bit. Millennials are a lot less risk averse, I find, than generations before them. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially in mining, so I'll speak to my own experience on yeah, that, sure. <laughs> being a millennial. Okay, fair enough. Um, but, you know, I graduated university in 2008. Uh, I had a job in exploration, and later that year, the crash came, and I was immediately fired along with everybody else on that job and went back to school. Uh, then we had a couple good years, and I was working in the field as an engineer. And then in, you know, late or 2012, things fell off a cliff again. And... I have never seen, so I was 25-ish at that point, and I've never seen anything good since then. You know, I consistently see good projects, do good work, raise money, and then still trade down. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, I think I'm in a very fortunate position that I've been able to surround myself with some very successful people who have spent a lot of time mentoring me and explaining the nature of these cycles and position yourself in times like this and the opportunity of being in times like this but most people in mining in my generation have never seen any real success beyond a paycheck if they're lucky um so it's hard to it is hard for people to have that optimism because they haven't ever experienced it and it's they haven't they don't have the visceral wins you know um i think you have to do research to find optimism for you but i will say at 32 is your age now being in the market now, you'll be one of our pioneers tomorrow. In a decade from now, if you stay in it, not only will you have a massive portfolio, not only will you start to see that. We're in a cycle. Your timing of entering the cycle was actually better than most because it's better to see the bad first. Yes, because, yeah. Because you don't know what to do when it's good, right? I feel like one of those kids that like grew up in the Great Depression and it's like they're saving their pennies every day. They don't want to like... They never want to waste. I feel like the scarring experience will sit with me for the rest of my life. Fair enough. But, um, <laughs> but even stock picking in our business, yeah. it's so easy when the market's bad to pick stocks that over time will, will do well. It's so hard when the market's good. You know, I don't want to buy any stocks, but, I, but inside my internal ambition is to buy every stock, right? So I know I, I experienced um, the dot-com crash to start, which was not mining. And I went from a non-existent mining market as a broker to a non-existent everything market to uh, I really think mining is going to come around. I had to, you know, put on some big boy pants and just go believe. And then I rode it up to the 08 crash, like you said, and saw that and then saw the 2012 crash. But I have a gear that I go into when we start a company 
and it doesn't shut off. It's, it's that one gear all the way through, regardless of conditions around. So from a company's perspective, you've surrounded yourself with really world-class technical people. Uh, you've been highly ambitious in terms of financing and then going out and spending that money and taking big swings and getting work done. The other side of that question was, you know, what, you know, for investors that are maybe experienced in the space, maybe new, who want to still make money in mining, what should they be looking at in terms of the companies that they choose to put their capital behind in this changed environment? I think, I think that's a, a great question. And if there was an easy answer, we'd all buy those companies. Yeah, but yeah. what I do, if I look outside of my own companies, and it will reflect kind of how we run our companies, I look for size. Um, it has to be big. If someone's looking to find a small deposit, not going to make much money on their share price, right? Um, track record is incredibly important, and you don't always find the perfect jockey because he's got to win his first race. So you got to speculate and listen to the person and establish your own opinion. But somebody who's done it once, twice, three times before, there's an ad, an old adage in our business saying, you're as good as your last deal. And that to me is critical because if you've won, you know how to win, you've been through it all, and in a position that we're in, or I'm in with, with my partners, we've won twice, and selling Cade and even to Ignico, I would have sat here with you and told you that it's 180, gonna go 180 degrees different than it did go. And that's how skewed I was until I went through that process yeah. with them. So experience pays well and look for people that have a track record and look for people that want to take big swings. So I will start by saying I totally agree with everything you've just said there. But I'm also going to play the devil's advocate because sure. to your earlier point, a lot of these guys are retiring. The Ross Beatties of the world, yeah. I mean, he's in his 60s now. Lucas Lundin is in his 60s now. Yeah. Robert Friedland is almost 70 now. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of Ivan Bevics out there who are still pretty young but, and have had a couple of successes, but there's going to have to be a whole new generation of that. So I'm going to pose you a theoretical question. Sure. If you were to invest in an untested CEO, so someone who hopefully has a track record of working with great companies, either in technical or a finance or a yeah. capital markets role, but they're going out and they're doing their own deal now, mm -hmm. what are the characteristics that you would look for. And one of the reasons I ask that is because, you know, buying into a Ross Beatty deal early on, it's not easy to get into those things in that early round. And even when you do, you, you pay the Ross Beatty premium because people know he's got a way better shot of winning than whoever down the street. So I see the big opportunity, especially for someone in my generation, is to find the 30-year-olds that are going to be filling that yeah, role. I, I, that's, if you could... If there was a person out there, I'd back them in a second. And yeah. what and I'm looking for that person daily. Um, work ethic, number one. And I entered the business with little knowledge about how it worked. Yes. And I was asking for money and I had a pool of people that believed in me. But how did I ensure their investments? I promised them and promised myself and I still to this day that I would work harder than everybody else until it was finally successful. So work ethic, and if you sat with me in my early 20s, was my number one reason of what I look for in a person. The second thing is they have to have an open-mindedness and be humble. I've met far too many guys in their 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s even. They get their first win and they ignore the fact that luck was involved and they think it was all them. And those are the most dangerous guys to put your money with. Um, 
you've got to be humble to admit when you're lucky. You can claim of earning your luck, that's work ethic, but I want a humble person that is incredible hard work ethic. And then the last thing is somebody that will listen to people that have done this before, that, that look for mentorship, that don't think they're going to do it better. And you know, in your 20s and 30s, you think, hey, I've got my own formula. I've learned enough from everyone. I'm going to do it my way and make it work. That's, that can work for some, but listening to mentorship from Ross Beatties, Lucas Lundins, and I've had the luxury of doing business with both of them, what you can learn from somebody that's done what you're doing for 40 years is the most priceless knowledge. And so, so if you listen, if you have hardcore work ethic, and if you're humble, then you've got my check and I'll back you. And you have to think big. That's the other part, is you gotta think big, big picture, but big assets, that's, that's the only way that we'll make money together with somebody new. So for those would-be mining entrepreneurs out there, and there are a few listening to this, you've done a great job of acquiring talented mentors. You've talked about Rob Sally. You've talked about Roman. How did you do that? You know, how did you distinguish yourself as someone that they want to invest their time into? So, so Rob was a cold call, as I yeah, mentioned earlier. Yeah. And um, how I got to him was I called up Roman's broker. Doug Smith at Raymond James. And I said, Doug, who are the top five mining brokers in Vancouver? And Rob Sally was on that list. So I called him up and, you know, that 45 seconds of, you know, moment that I'll never forget was that. And I followed up. I, um, I grew up as a European family and did a lot of hunting and fishing for meat. We're not killing animals for sport. So I hunted a moose later that year. And I showed up to Rob Sally's office with a bag of moose <laughs> and the frozen moose meat nicely butchered in stuff and steaks and you know and you have to find a way in to smart people to show them that you're going to respect and listen so when I came to his office after he invested I brought the moose meat he sat me down for 45 minutes and really generous guy with his time for me and basically he learned what I was going to do what I wasn't going to do and I started listening to Rob and then he started making introductions and I just promised him I was going to work my ass off basically really hard because I wanted him to look good. I wanted him to make money. And if he introduced me to people, I want that to happen. And pretty soon word got around. I think Rick Rule gave me a nice compliment to Rob one year or one day. And he said that I was one of the hardest working guys in the business. And I was like, great. It's not about making money in the first part. It's about giving that effort in so people can respect that you're going to work hard. And if you get it right, it's going to do really well for shareholders, right? So that was the, the intro. That's how I got through Rob. Rob made some introductions. And then for me, I never stopped looking for Rob Sallies. And you know, I admired Robert Friedland a ton because when he first moved to Vancouver, my dad was friends with Robert Friedland and I grew up listening to Friedland's stories. The first stock I bought was in 1995 called African Minerals. Anyone else who's bought this in 1995 realizes it was 17 years to go public. It's now Ivanhoe Mines. And so um, I got into a car accident, unfortunately, but I was okay. But ICBC, their insurance company, gave me some money and I bought that stock. My dad said, you know, these are all my Friedland stories. Friedland's done a handful of deals to 10 or $20 a share. He said, you know, so what I like about Friedland is the showmanship was awesome. And it's not that he's this incredible salesman. It's that he's not afraid and he's to sell the opportunity that's really in front of you. And I find a lot of people are conservative because they want to be safe and they want to look good for being right. I found if you follow him from his early years, Robert Friedland, if the opportunity was to find a 10 million ounce gold mine, you heard about it and you felt it in the room. 
what's the point to go in and be conservative and say, well, it could be maybe what? No, you, you want to hear and feel what could be there. And I think he was a master of doing that. And so he's really selling the dream of what he's after there. What like, he's after. He's going out to find the 10 million ounce mine. Or 20 or whatever yeah. it may be, yeah. What do you find most people do in that situation? I find most people will come into those meetings and say, we're looking for, maybe we'll find a million ounces at first. Yeah, it could go to 10, but maybe we'll get on the first million and, oh, there's this other blue sky, but we don't know yet. You know, I find there's a lot of safety and people don't like to put their neck out. You know, I heard stories of Robert Freeland walking around boardrooms, you know, with his, you know, dancing with the African stuff that he experienced or smashing his shoe on the table and his selling of Boise's Bay. And, you know, these are the kind of, the kind of energy that gets investors paid, that gets you financed, that gets your share price, the appreciation it deserves. People would line up to invest into Robert's deals and they do to this day. And he's exciting, but he's also winning with what he's finding. He's a smart guy, a brilliant guy, and the assets he's found are spectacular. Um, not everybody's perfect in entrepreneurs and everybody has multiple sides, but the side that works for him, great. I mean, go listen to him talk at a show. I, I guarantee you're writing a check before you leave the conference for his to buy shares in his company. So he's talking today at the Sprout Conference, and I have heard this, rain rumored, I don't know if this is true, but that several funds have rules in place that their fund managers or their portfolio managers are not allowed to buy a Friedland share of one of his companies for at least 24 hours after hearing him speak, him speak <laughs> well, because they get me mesmerized by the idea. Yeah, but he's a, he's a true visionary, right? Yeah. And he he lays it out so well, so organized. And I think it's his confidence that comes out. But um, no, it's you know what I'm. He's doing it with some of the best assets in the world as well. So I think you're whether you buy it right after or you don't, you're still going to win. <laughs> so this is a good transition to something. I wanted to talk about with you personally for a while. Um, there are a lot of mining, okay, let me take a step back. Promotion often has a bad name in the mining industry uh, and often rightfully so. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been an issue in mining stocks particularly that people confuse promotion with marketing. And marketing is important in every industry markets, whether you're selling books or condos or whatever, you need marketing. So marketing is important in mining. Oren and your past companies have done a phenomenal job of, of marketing. You're not afraid to engage the right people to get your story out there. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies are vehemently against this. Mm -hmm. So what are your views on marrying strong, aggressive, honest marketing with good science, good work, and good assets. So in my speech yesterday on our management slide, the title, Experienced Balanced Management Team, um, experience to show you that we've done it before, but the balance is the key word to, to address your point. Balance part is, I would argue that our marketability or promotionability, I'm not offended by the word, but we don't sell stock to investors, we buy stock as insiders. We can couch that in a moment. But our marketability strengths are measured by an equal or stronger technical strengths, right? And when you merge those two together, you get a really good level of balance so that you're not just blowing smoke or marketing a dream that's so far away from happening, right? All of our marketing decisions, our budgets, and everything is made with the underlining or underpinning of really strong technical confidence, right? What most geologists are afraid to do is to promote their ideas. And 
what we've done a great job to do is we promote the ideas that geologists wouldn't normally promote because they are founded by some incredible world experts. I believe if you don't market your story properly, you have no chance of avoiding dilution, raising money, or performing with your share price. So the people that are against that, vehemently against it, I mean, there's a fine line. Are you pumping your stock up so you can sell a bunch of shares and go do this five more times? Or are you marketing something you really believe in as a vision, buying three and a half million dollars of shares as I did personally in Orin, in the market up to 375 per share, you know, alongside that because you believe in your vision. There's two different types of marketing that happens in our business. Some is self-serving by people don't sit as insiders on their companies. They try to put these companies together and pump up the share price to sell them and make money. Other guys actually have something to say and are trying to create world awareness. So if they hit the big discovery as they think they will, then they get their 10, 20, $30 share price and then all investors win even more. I think one of my rules of investing into another company outside of the, the technical abilities is the marketability. If you have the best technical team and the best technical project, I'm going to buy your company with my company. I'm not going to invest into your company as an investor because I'll never make any money, right? But if you have a good chance to market yourself or somebody in part of your team that can do that, then I'm happy to help out and become an investor and market your company as well. So it's, it's an essential ingredient. I say it's a 50-50 split between technical team and marketability because if you can't finance it, you won't be able to go find it technically. And if you don't have it technically, you're not going to be able to market and finance it. So I draw the line in the middle there. So you come in strongly on that marketing side. You yes. Know, you come from a capital markets background. Sure. What is it you look for when, either when you're investing in a technical team or when you're choosing technical partners? You know, you spoke briefly about your partnership with Strong, sorry, with Sean Wallace. Yes. And obviously he's a key part of the team here and he's been a key part of your career for the last many years. Sure. What is it you're looking for and what draws you to these people uh, and to put your name and your money and your time behind them? So that's a tough question. It's like trying to find the best doctor and not being a doctor and picking one for you, right? Yeah. And so you go by referral, you go by reputation and whatnot. And um, actually, how it all started was Rob McLeod introduced Sean and I to Dan McCoy when we were starting Keegan. We needed a president CEO geologist for our company. And he spoke highly of Dan by referral, a brilliant technical guy, and you guys should work with him. Dan came in, past work with Placer, but the guy was extremely studious. The guy didn't stop learning and studying. He's a PhD, incredible geologist. And he actually chose our current technical team. So we relied on somebody that found us two incredible deposits or successes to choose and recruit our current technical team. And I think the message there is don't try and choose an expert in a field you don't know much about. Work through referral to find somebody that can pick the best person in the industry. The gentleman we're working with, uh, Michael Henriksen, our chief geologist, and Dave Smithson, and then they brought in all the, the former global experts from Newmont. These two guys, what Sean and I both liked about them was their quality of work and their reputation of quality of work. Um, big part of adding a lot of ounces to a HAFO in Ghana. But my favorite thing about both of these guys is if they don't know something technically that well, they know about everything, but if they don't know about geophysics, they find somebody that's a world expert about geophysics. And that humbleness amongst them, not saying I know everything, is what makes them good, really good technical people. I think you make a extremely good point. Um, 
I have noticed over the last couple of years, there are a lot of very vocal, very, uh, very opinionated sort of armchair speculators in the mining industry who have such strong conviction in their opinions, uh, even on technical issues. And I know they have no technical background. Mm -hmm. And I do not understand how they are able to have that sort of conviction. I mean, I'm a mining engineer. I do have a technical background. And truthfully, on some deposits, I feel like I have no idea what's going on because I'm not an expert in epithermal gold deposits in Mexico or maybe porphyry copper deposits in Chile. And I always find the person that is and spend a lot of time talking to them and uh, sort of leeching off of their knowledge to, to try to make a decision. And I don't really know where I'm going at this point, but I do think there's a lot of people out there and I would say do not overestimate your ability, your technical ability. Just because you can understand a technical report, it's very, very hard to differentiate and the, the devil is really in the details there. Well, and, on that point exactly, you take a geologist of a typical junior, there's usually one or two geologists that are the team, usually one. Yeah. And that gentleman will know about geophysics, about geochemistry, about structural geology, a little bit about engineering. They're know-it-all, like technically, and that's all these juniors can yeah. afford to create. It's the geologist, that geologist that says, you know what, I know a little bit about geophysics, but that guy's the best guy I can get access to in the business. I want him to tell me the way you just described what you would do. Yeah. That's the geologist I want to finance and I want to work with. And there's been some legendary geologists that have found some incredible deposits. I find that the the reason why some of them don't continuously win is because you have to, again, remember that sometimes you're lucky. It's not always, you know, right time and place. You and I could have drilled certain holes that, you know, somebody got fame and into the Hall of Fame on, I mean, in some deposits. But, you know, it's not as, it's not as transparent as it looks. I just went on a site visit about two months ago to a company called Osino Resources. Okay. Run by a gentleman named Hai Down. I didn't invest in it yet. Uh, I'm kind of regretting that at the moment because they're doing very well. But I was really impressed by the site visit, by the team. But particularly something Haye does is he's got a really cracked geologist named David Underwood, years at Anglo, tons of experience. I spent many days with him, great guy. But what Haye does is once or twice a year, he brings in outside geologists, equally reputable, and they act as kind of like the red team that tries to poke holes in all the theory. Mm -hmm. And he made the point himself, you know, he's not a geologist, he's an engineer, he's, he's not up to date enough to really understand the difference of, to, to be able to effectively argue against a theory or an idea. And bringing in those sort of countering points, I think is genius, because I personally have a hard time distinguishing between a very confident geologist and a very competent geologist. Yeah, that, that's fair, and um, we rely on our board. Um, yeah. Antonio Rebus is on our board, and if you don't know him by reputation, he was formerly the chief geologist for Newmont, and he was the VP of Geosciences for BHP. Um, extremely well regarded globally and followed by everybody in the, in the technical world. They know who he is. Um, being a board member, an independent director, the separation between him and our technical team is, is massive. And if you sit through some of our board meetings, you will hear him do exactly what was said. If he finds a topic that he doesn't like or doesn't understand, he's extremely vocal, and we rely on him for that matter. Dan McCoy, who was our main geologist, is now an independent consultant to us, to a degree. And Dan reviews what we're doing all the time just the same. So we have that mechanism in place. Um, the team that we work with is seven people, 
and they work by committee. They don't work independent. No, no independent decision gets to decide unless everyone agrees to it, right? But um, having somebody like Antonio on our board has been an incredible smart move on our part to make sure that exactly that's happening. Uh, I know Dave Underwood and I know Asino as well. And you know, I remember when that was coming together. Um, we, he knows our technical team extremely well yeah. and a lot of respect there. And um, it's, uh, it's brilliant what that guy's doing. And I think more companies need to be held accountable for that. And you know, there's something else on the other side of the business Sean and I talked about yesterday um, with respect to bonuses that I that we we might we're thinking of implying employing into our corporate culture and that's companies now are talking about only bonusing their executives if the share price performs amongst their peers not in the general market but amongst their peers and so he brought it up yesterday he heard of it and um, one of our directors actually mentioned it and I think it's a brilliant idea you know if you're gonna get rewarded it should be based off of everyone getting rewarded, not just putting a lot of work in. Right? Yeah, objective performance. Objective not, performance. Yeah. yeah. So, on that note, we should start talking about Orin a little bit now. Sure, sure. What I want to start with, and I want to get into the details of what you guys are doing and the projects and, and all that, but what are you guys doing to be innovative right now? Ah, using artificial intelligence up in Committee Bay. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's big. The biggest thing we've done outside the box, which I'll call it as innovative, is what we did in Peru with our Sombrero project. Um, we went somewhere that everybody dismissed because there was volcanic cover over the rocks and there was a perception the age of the rocks were too young that we were exploring. And this is um, down by Las Bombas and these major mines that exist in the Andes. Yep. And all these huge mines, Las Bombas, Tintay, Anticapai, there's a handful of them occur in this belt. And if you look at them geologically, they're all outcropping, as we've talked earlier, the easy ones to find. On the west side of the belt, there was a debate, and it was largely dismissed that the rocks were too young, and these small little windows of high grade were just leakage. We decided to ignore the popular opinion by all the geologists out there, these major mining companies that had been all over our project well before we were, and we decided to say, look, we're going to look at the grade a bit closer, do the elaborate work. And we started finding widths and grades of the mines next door all over our project. We got the age dating back on the rocks. It's actually all the same ages of the water. So we have the other half of the same belt. And that was our innovation, I think, to a degree, was coming outside the box and going against the typical assumption on age dating from a government study that everybody else believed in. And now we might be hosting one of the world's biggest copper gold districts in one big land position. So... That was the biggest thing, I think, that we did outside of the AI being used at Committee Bay. So what should people know about Orin? If I'm an investor at home right now and I'm looking to get exposure to gold exploration, what do I need to know? Well, I'd say you get copper gold exploration. Oh, sorry, yes. Just to be clear, but um, size matters to us. And if I haven't made that clear in the podcast, that's exactly what we're after because that's where we'll make a lot of money with our shareholders. Um, I'm giving a speech today down at the conference and it's titled Once in a Lifetime Opportunity. And the first thing people will assume that's quite presumptuous and sure it is, but the Sombrero project for us in Peru is something that we'll never see again in our careers and it's the only time I'll ever get a chance to be part of something that could be this big. Um, It's analogous to Las Bombas and a handful of other mines next door. Las Bombas is the 10th largest mine in the world, copper producer, sold for $7 billion in 2014. 
all the same rocks, the same age, widths of the same grade, and major mining companies have come and look at this project independent of our opinion. And we like to think that the Kool-Aid is usually spiked with vodka when you make it yourself. You can't taste the vodka. But if somebody else comes and tastes it, they can taste it. So the reaction from the major mining companies has been extremely positive and it actually arguably a lot more ambitious than we were thinking it is, believe it or not. And so everyone thinks, and it's been written in the Peruvian journals, that this could be the other half of the district. And we're in 5% of our land position and we're comparing the first 5% to potentially another Las Bombas. Plus, 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 plus. There's a lot more to go with it. So for, for you as an investor, for everybody listening to this podcast, you know, to find an entire district in one company that means multiple mines in one property. That that's unheard of. It's usually done by majors. It's why majors buy projects and they usually buy hundred thousand, two hundred thousand hectares afterwards because they want to control and have these big land positions. Um, we caught everybody sleeping technically with that wrong age of rocks and the volcanic cover. And now we're seeing that we're more than right. And we're seeing it on surface and in some historical drill holes. So I think it's a once in a lifetime thing we're going to get a chance to deliver. I think the copper market as well as the gold market are going to do extremely well. You can look at supply or demand outpacing supply in 2022. I believe it starts to happen. And you can look at just general demand for copper. Anything new construction, electrification of transport, anything with a power switch in it of any sort is copper. And it's getting hard to find these big ones. So It is hard to imagine a world in the future that doesn't need more copper. I, If you believe in climate change, if you believe in that they're going to renovate those 40, 50-year-old houses or rebuild houses in your neighborhood, if you believe they're going to build new high-rises, and we see the cranes across the globe, and I've learned a lot of this on my own, but just listen to Friedland's speech about it, but electrification of cars and of society, renewable energy, all of that involves copper. And not just the the batteries in these new cars. I mean, they've been speaking in Vancouver about, I can't remember the date, maybe 2025 or something like that, only having electric cars in the city. And the upgrades to the grid that would be required for that is astronomical. I mean, the the grid in this city can't possibly support a million cars on the street that are charging every night. If you remember Bitcoin, they were talking about Bitcoin saturating enough power demand that there'd be no power left in three years from when Bitcoin was $19,000 a coin, right? And that's just to create those Bitcoins. We'll think about electric cars, and this is a good stat that I got from a, a fund manager in Boston. Three, if you put 3% of the world into electric cars, there's no more copper left on the planet right now based on current supply. And that's a pretty pretty aggressive 3% of the world driving 7 billion people I'm not sure how many exactly are driving but you put 3% of the world into electric cars that's not a lot because the saturation is quite small but but that being said back to it I mean Sombrero's not our only project there's more to come there but um, you know I, I can't not talk about it as the focal point because the probability of success is just it's a matter of how rich is it and how big is it not is it there anymore because of surface results in a copper gold system and, and some past drilling, and we can see plenty of real estate to go and add this big deposit. The guy who brought us Sombrero is the guy who, Miguel Cardozo, who converted Yanacocha to a gold discovery from a silver discovery. That's a 60 million ounce epithermal discovery. This was his next big idea in Peru. He ran out of money in the, in the bear market to be able to support it. 
um, and do the elaborate work himself. But no, it's truly a once in a lifetime. I think my and our team's careers are going to be defined by it. Um, top five mining companies in the world. We've heard from all of them. They're all there. And you know, now it's just a matter of going and drilling it and uh, putting up a discovery that hasn't happened for 20 years or 10 years. You know. So what can current shareholders and potential shareholders expect to see at Oren over, over the next 12 to 18 months? I think you'll see us get our permit to drill down in Peru. Um, we have something we've been after for four years in Peru that we should be able to acquire. It's, it's an early stage of Sombrero on a bigger belt in Peru, so you'll see an acquisition. Um, we have some gold projects in BC. We have a, the Committee Bay Gold Project in Northern Canada. Committee Bay, we're drilling. As I sit here with you right now, we're going for Canada's next major high-grade gold discovery. We're going for an Amarouk, which we talked about earlier being the last major gold deposit. Um, drill results will be out in October and Q4, and so we may or may not have made that discovery. You can't see it in the core until you get them back, but you'll get a lot of results from the gold side of the portfolio as we wait for permits to get onto this uh, big copper gold system in Peru. And then once drilling starts, uh, either the end of this year or Q1, early Q1 next year, look forward to you know one of the world's bigger discoveries in the last decade or two that starts getting made and you know enjoy the, the ride as a shareholder. I mean, uh, we're sitting here today, five years after spending $100 million. We have not drilled a hole yet that would define a big discovery. And we sit here with a $200 million market cap. You know, there's that, that saying, you know, share price never lies. And when it goes down, I would argue, d- does it lie? Because it should be up. Um, no, I would say this part. The share price cannot sustain, the company cannot sustain that valuation if you don't have the goods. Not in this market. Maybe in a bull market, but we're not quite in the bull market yet. So I'm trying to give you an idea of how much third-party validation is really onto the system. Um, once the drill holes start, it's the kind of thing you know I dream about as an investor to be part of a big system. That's why I've bought so much in the open market and, and I keep buying as an insider is because I think this will be one of the biggest things I find in my career. And the technical team, they said it in a news release. Michael Henriksen, our chief geologist, said this is the best project he's seen pre-drilling in his career. And he's formerly the global structural geologist, Newmont. He's seen more projects in his career than I'll see in my entire career so far. So you know, I take that at heart face value, I take the third party validation at face value, and then I look at the science and what they're presenting and logic has a very simple role and uh, we've got a good shot. So look for a massive discovery, look for potentially more on the gold side, but uh, this thing in Peru is going to really take shape here pretty quick. So you've put together this strong team, um, but you guys can't, not everyone can do everything. So where do you guys see your role in the industry? Is it discover, define, sell? Is it bring something to production? What's the vision for what Oren becomes? It's discover, monetize, and de-risk, and then sell. Um, There's no company that's usually built to do both, find and build. And the investment curve that we like the most, and I'll quote Keegan's performance, 49 cents to $9 per share, that's the return of finding something. And generally, when you start to build things, I know you're an engineer, they get smaller and the blue sky gets taken away. And it's not what gets me out of bed. So our team is driven by being mind finders. They're not always going to be early stage projects we look at. 
I mean, we'll look at more advanced scenarios, but the last thing I want to do is build another mine in my career. We built a, a Sanko. You know, I, I was moving on from there as that started, and you can talk to Marcel, I know you know well, and some of the directors of how much of a headache that was. Um, it's a, not easy building a mine, and the reward for a shareholder is not worth it. And I don't work for a salary. I work for a share price return. That's what I'm in this business for, and I think the biggest return is going to be discovery. Is there something that you do today that you did very differently in the early days of your career? Has there been, you know, when you were starting out as a 23-year-old, first as a broker, then as mm -hmm. in investor relations and working with companies, is there anything you learned along the way that has drastically changed the way you do business or the way you approach problems? That's a really good question, and I have to think about that one for a moment. It's not an easy one. Um, because you... You build a foundation back then, and you add to it. Mm -hmm. I never rebuilt my, my foundation. I think the, the biggest thing that I do differently, and it's because of means more than anything else, is I buy into my deals publicly to show people my confidence, and I put my money where my mouth is more than just buying an initial position. Something I can do now, I couldn't do back then, but I'm not sure I would have added the extra risk money there, even though it was the right thing to do. And um, no, I think that that's a big part is just putting more money where your mouth is and committing more. But um, you know, outside of that, uh, I can't think of much that's drastically changed from then till now. I think our knowledge and experience is way further than it was. The model has improved dramatically, but the biggest thing is we're swinging a lot bigger than we did. That's for me. That's my big thing. And I have the means to do it, or our group has the means to do it. Our team is what makes that possible. When you look around the space today, um, there is this, as you mentioned, older generation that's passing the torch to a degree to a younger generation, even though it's dwindled a little bit. Is there advice that you see people given or that you strongly disagree with? Like, you know, common maxims or common ideas in the space that you think are actually quite wrong? I actually think a huge thing is there's a saying that if you find it, they will come. You know, if you go find, if you drill it, everyone's going to come. I think you have to be, the advice I would, I would counter that with, you have to be really competitive to show everybody what you're finding. Because if nobody knows what you're finding, no one's going to pay you for it, right? You drill a big enough hole, then we're all going to notice it globally, right? But if you start to find a big gold discovery or a big copper discovery, and you're not telling anybody about it, you're not marketing it, I think that the advice that should be given is, if you believe in it, make sure you market it. Make sure the whole world knows about it, if it's going to be world-class, right? And I think too many guys are told, oh, no, no, just wait till you find it, and then it'll all come. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I think it's such a... It's a fine balance. Fine between, balance, yeah. yeah. But, but if you drill a hole and it means something to you, it should mean something to others as well. And if you don't tell people what it might mean, that it's going to mean something... I think then you're going you're gonna to get a miss on a reaction. And I've seen a lot of technically driven companies sit there with 10 or 15 cent share prices that should be trading at 2 or $3 that have better projects than well-promoted companies, you know, that have mines that will actually be built. And so my thing is it's a tricky business because in our group we like to say we're, we're technically led and that's the way we, we choose our stuff that we're going to finance and market. But we are paralleling the strong technical team with a strong market finance team 
to give us the ability to raise 100 million in the last five years in the markets we're in and spend it. And I mean, you know, that's what this business is about. And I think there should be more people canvassing more generalists and guys with great ideas and bringing more attention to the great ideas. And I think a lot of guys are afraid to go out and do that until they have the goods. This reminds me a lot of something Rick Rule said to me when he first, when I first met him, the first conversation I had with him. He said, you know, the key to success in this business, no matter what you're doing, is to build a very strong constituency of supporters around you. Whether you're a technical person that needs the backing of your bosses and your, or you're a promoter that needs, you know, financiers and investors or a broker that needs clients. Like, you have to build that tight support network and reward those people for supporting you. Sure. And it seems to me that you guys have done a very good job of that. Yeah. Or, and a very good job of prioritizing that where a lot of people have not. You know, something I've noticed about your private placements, because I spend a lot of time looking at private placements, is they're not easy to get into. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no warrants for the most part. And that is not what I have found in general in the space over the last couple of years, that most companies will take money from anyone on almost any terms at this point. So that's a big thing that people do, and I know money's hard to come by. Not everybody's had the track record we've had or the luck we've had, and I'll be humble about it. Um, it's not easy to raise money, or it hasn't been. It's going to get better now, but whoever you finance with today will determine your share price in six months. And a lot of people ignore that, and they take money for when they need it, and they take it now. The other thing we've done taken only what we need. We rarely overfinance. We will modestly overfinance to insure us unless we have a very good share price that we feel is way, way higher valued. But a lot of guys, and I remember this in the Keegan days, we were doing it financing at 240 per share. The financing being offered to us was around $40 million. We started to raise 15 and we took $17 million. After a big internal fight about wanting to take more I said, no, we're only going to take 17 because this thing is going to get, it was about a million ounces on its way to five. We had the confidence. Technically, the market call was correct. And although it'd be great to have $40 million in that financing, we had nowhere to officially spend that extra money for the time being. So each time we did financings, we took what we needed with a little bit of cushion. And that was because we believed in our project in the market. And that's how we got to $9 per share. Had we taken all the money we were offered, I don't think we would have got past 3 or $4, maybe $5 per share. So it's a fine game again. It's, it's, this is something that I've built my career off of as being really strategic and intelligent on financings and how to do them when's too much, when's not enough, and making sure you're in good shape. And having that constituency yeah. that's really strong makes that a lot easier to do. You know, that's a very interesting story, actually, because I have most often heard the other side of that in terms of people were offered a lot, they turned it down, mm -hmm. and then they blew up, and a few months later, they couldn't raise a dollar. And there's so many people that have tried that and failed. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I guess so the, that comes down to the really deep technical understanding of the project and really knowing what you have. And the market, mm -hmm. what's gonna come and go, but now we're gonna walk up to the 750 financing we did in Keegan for $200 million. And up until then, Sean let me have my way, we're partners with doing these, take what we need a little bit more, not overfunding it. But once we got to 750, 
I don't even think we were going to raise like 80 million and the book grew to 200 million. And so running that company with Sean, mindset had to go from taking 80 million and always taking what you need a bit of a cushion to taking 200. And I didn't argue it one day and Sean's like, we're taking 200. And I was like, okay, this is your call now. And that saved Keegan because shortly after was the 2012 sell-off. And right. now we had 80% of the money to go build the mine. And so, and at 750 per share, the dilution price was, was what I said earlier, if it's the right price, you take it. Um, you've got to be really intelligent about when you take it. But the last point I'll make about financings, it's who gives you the money. You know, we can go get money right now. There's $20 million out there easily for us. But a lot of the guys may not understand the difference between oxide and sulfide. This is no offense to them there very general investors, which we'd appreciate them as shareholders. However, and a bigger financing to give away five or 10% of your company to go get a check, you should be aligning yourself if you can with technically driven investment funds that have longer term outlooks. Because you go drill 100, 200 meters of 1% copper half a gram gold in a massive system, and or maybe 300 meters of that, you and I will know that's a world-class hole, that this thing could be a monster. All the major mining companies will know that. The investor may only be aware that, hey, it's up 40%. I'm going to take that. That's a good return, not realizing what it could be. Um, a good story for you about Aurelian. And uh, I was an investor at $1.80. They drilled their first few holes and went from $0.20 cents yesterday to $1.80 on its way to wherever it ended up going to $44 a share. Um, it crossed $3 within a week. I was up a few hundred grand, and at the time I was in my 20s. That was a lot of money for me. That was a really good pass. I asked a few industry experts, I won't say who they are, <laughs> out of respect to, to them and that whatnot, and I said, is this real? Is this going to go all the way? And I got a response of, um, Ivan, more often than not, these things don't continue like this, and this is the best hole, and so I really don't know. And that from that industry expert, that had me sell out. I took my $3.20 from my dollar eighty purchase and I think I had about 200,000 shares at the time. And then I blinked twice over the next six months and it's at $44, $45 a share. And I was like, wow, did I ever miss it? But it comes back to not knowing enough about what I was invested into and I sold. So my mindset and when, I bring, when we bring investors into our company or our mindsets, we want people to know because if you want to get to those price returns, the more people that understand what they own, the better your shareholder base is. We trade extremely well and we thank our shareholders all the time, but we've educated them quite well and we do a lot of marketing to do that because we want everybody understanding not only our business model, our business plan, but the opportunity and what it could be worth. If everyone is looking for a double and you think it could go 10 times that, you need to convince them all that way or else it, it's going to have a hard time getting it. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, if you were to invest today, if you were to look at something today outside of Oren and the ecosystem of companies you're involved in, mm -hmm. where would you be putting your money? Well, the decision has to be based off of people yeah. and because that's what I've told you from the beginning of this, this interview. And... Um, I'm not a person that will chase something cheap. 
I'm a person who would chase something run by good people because then I don't have to worry about the company. I've tried both, and I've always lost when I've gone and bought something because it was well-priced, more often than not. Um, which company would I follow with as an investor? I would buy, I'll give you two, I'd buy, I'd buy Equinox because of Ross. Um, he wrote a huge check into that company. Ross is somebody I got to know really well right before we sold Caden. Um, as far as um, as far as uh, Lucas Lending, I'd buy his companies and I would buy Ross Beatty's. Those would be the first two that I'd go buy. If you said, what would you buy? And I may own some already as is. And the big reason why is because I believe in the people. I believe in how they run their business. I wouldn't spend too much time because I don't have it taking apart each project and worrying about that part of it. I wouldn't write a blank check either but it would be on the confidence that they've made big investments and they've done this before more times than I may get a chance to do it in my career. And you can defer to their expertise that 100%. they've done the work to yeah. make good decisions and put their money behind the right people and the right projects and the right teams. Yeah, and you know, I would echo that that a lot of people at home that's how they should be making their decisions too if you don't have a technical background, if you don't if you're not really dialed into this space day in day out then it's best to bet on winners. Well, if you're pure generalist and you're hearing this and you're thinking about investing for the first time, call the CEO or the chairman, whoever's running the company up, and ask him what his last company did and how it performed and make your decisions off of what he's done before. Um, nobody does this and everybody should do it. You're going to get an answer that's going to give you an obvious yes or maybe I should ask more questions and learn more about it. If you can't get comfort of knowledge from that company or that CEO that you're talking to, call another industry expert, however you call them, whoever you decide to choose, and ask them about that first CEO and see what they have to say. Do a little bit of due diligence. You know, if you're gonna invest a million dollars or half a million dollars into a mining stock, you should be calling the CEO. You know, I don't care what kind of business you're in or what you got your money from, you know, if you're gonna make that kind of investment into something non-mining, into a business, are you going to meet the CEO that's starting a shop that needs a half a million dollars for you? Or is some third party going to say, hey, this guy's opening a shop down the street. He needs half a million dollars. You're going to want to look the guy in the whites of the eyes and, and, and determine for yourself. Now, accessibility and reach and time is not something all CEO or executives offer. But if you're serious, they should be serious too and make the time for you and uh, just represent yourself properly. You know, And I say, so call the companies and Give them a hard time. Ask them the hard questions, you know. And you'll find out quickly who's the better ones in the business and, and who are the ones that are pure crapshoots and risks, right? Yeah. If you're looking at the gold market as a whole and the point of cycle we're in, I'm sure if you asked Ross Beatty, Lucas Lundin, myself, Robert Friedland, Marcel, all, all the guys that we respect in this business, there's going to be a certain degree of bias that we're all going to have because we want to see the market come back sooner than later. But there's also going to be a very, you know, uh, hindsight comment that can be made. And I think we could all say that we had hoped or planned or made investments assuming this would be six months earlier happening, what's happening today. But it's happening regardless and we're finally going. Usually industry experts are just early. They're right, but they're early because they know too much about the business. But I don't think there's a, an expert that would not be on side with this being either the start of a bull or the heads up that the bull market is coming. 
All right. Well, we've been going about an hour, and I think I need to let you get back to your day now. But is there anything you'd like to leave listeners lit with? Any last comments or requests from the audience? Um, I just think pick your companies wisely and be bold and make sure you get a hold of management. But we've been in a, in a down cycle since 2012. And in the next couple of years, we think it's going to change to the up cycle. Don't be too patient with picking companies now, mid-tiers, majors, and whatnot. I think that our industry, when it starts to go to a proper bull market, it's a really tiny market, and there's going to be a ton of money that's going to come into a very small space. And if you buy today into this market with ideas that you like, you're going to get rewarded over the longer period, no matter, I think, full stop, because we're going towards the bull. But just don't be patient. I think it's time. I think take advantage of all these things that are happening. We're at the end of our down cycle, going to a positive one in all commodities is my statement. Aware that on record and in two years from now, I, I plan to be very right from that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, Ivan, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate Talk it. To you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.